In a recent mobile app testing survey, 84% of QA organizations said they need to test on real devices in order to be successful. Cambryonics builds managed USB hubs to help you test easier. Discover how managed USB hubs can accelerate delivery of your apps. Learn more at cambryonics.com. Hello and welcome to the InfoQ Podcast. My name is Wes Rice. I chair a set of software conferences called QCon and I'm the host of the show. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Johnny Crispus. Johnny is a predominant personality in the information security community, most well known for his work on the TSA Master Key Leaks between 2014 and 2018. He is the Director of Field Engineering for North America and Europe for Casada, a company that ensures only humans access web apps. Prior to that, he spent many years growing up as a pen tester. So today on the podcast, we're going to be talking a bit about modern attack vectors. We're going to talk about the OWASP top 10. We're going to talk about the anatomy of a hack. And then we're going to dive into recommendations from Johnny on how to secure your web apps and your commercial front ends. Johnny, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Wes. Great to be here. So let's talk about this phrase first, a company that ensures only humans access web apps. What does that mean? We used to talk a lot about bots and bots attacking things and keeping bots away. And I had found that this was giving people the mentality of bot nets. They would think about the roving bands of <laughs> clouds of compromised computers that are just launching blind attacks, the kind of white noise of the internet that you're always defending against. What we've developed here is something that goes beyond that and targets the use of automation as an attack tool of any form. And so even when you're being attacked by a human being, that human being is likely going to be writing a lot of scripts to take care of what they're doing. They're going to be using a lot of automated tools to do the more monotonous work because the main critical flaw in human beings as far as this work goes, and the reason we invented computers as a whole, is there's a lot of monotonous, repetitive tasks that need to be taken care of within, let's say, the time span of a human life. And humans get very bored very quickly compared to computers. And so we have resorted to using computers to take care of a lot of those things. And so it's not just the bot nets that are out there and these blind bots launching you know, one-off vulnerabilities to see what they can get into that we're defending against, but it's also the intelligent attackers who have a complex toolkit that they've really kind of built out to handle the sorts of attacks that they're launching. So while we are ensuring that these bot nets are definitely keeping their hands off of your stuff, we're also ensuring that these one-off bots that these intelligent attackers use are also staying out of the way. And so that only good, clean, decent human beings can access the, <laughs> the infrastructure that you put out there for them. So do you deploy as part of a CDN as like a reverse proxy in that stack? Or do you have your own kind of cloud infrastructure that people kind of go behind? We have our own cloud infrastructure that can be dropped in anywhere inside of that stack that you like. We do recommend just going behind the CDN. Being behind a CDN allows you to create path-specific rules, as in URL path-specific rules, to control exactly what comes to us for filtering, because you don't necessarily want to process every HTTP request that comes in to determine if it's a bot or not, because one of the reasons you have a CDN is to offload a lot of your asset delivery, you know, your images, your videos, your things like that. And so if you've got the CDN doing that anyway, you can let that handle feeding that to the attackers. And if you're dealing with an intelligent attacker who's trying to break in, say, do brute forcing on a login form or something, or even if they're just trying to do some form spam or something like that, more often they're not even requesting assets anyway. But you would put us behind your CDN, or if you don't have a CDN, it's fine too. We can operate like a CDN where you just point the DNS directly at us for the domains you want to have protected. 
we get those requests and then we figure out what's good and what's bad. And anything that's good, we just forward on to your origin. Anything that's bad, we deal with and you don't have to worry about it. So what is the sophistication of modern attacks? What are we seeing today? Are we still focused on the OWASP top 10? Are we seeing some more sophisticated attacks? What are you seeing out there? Yeah, it's almost misleading to use the term sophistication. (laughs) (laughs) There are absolutely some extremely sophisticated attacks going on out there. But far and away, the vast majority of the web application attacks that we see coming in and that truly everyone sees coming in are still the same old scripted. They're using curl. They're using burp suite. They're using, you know, Python requests. They're using Node.js and just hammering together some quickie garbage script because it works because nearly no one is defending against that sort of thing. And that predominantly comes from us still using ancient technology, like most every WAF that's out there. We're relying on things like IP reputation and blacklisting, which in 2019 is completely useless because IP addresses are freely and easily rotatable. Residential IPs are cheap to get in the thousands. There's been nothing on the defensive side that's really caused attackers to have to up their sophistication. And if there's no reason to do the work, they're not going to do it. That being said, there are sophisticated automation tools out there, such as PhantomJS, such as ZombieJS. I think most people will be familiar with Puppeteer, coupled with Headless Chrome. And that's actually controlling a real browser that's able to do everything. It's able to handle cookies. It's able to process JavaScript. And that's an extremely devastating tool that bypasses nearly all defenses out there that are doing you know checks to determine if something's human or not. We at Casada have developed a great defense against Puppeteer and those other tools as well. But for the most part, companies just don't have that level of sophistication and defense. The upside is that most attackers don't resort to that unless they need to. And when they need to, it's been surprising how few attackers actually are familiar with those more sophisticated tools. Do we want to hit on OWASP top 10? It's still the same old things that I've seen for the last 10 years. It's literally just injection and broken authentication and sensitive data exposure. It doesn't seem like it's really changed all that much. Right. A good friend of mine, Jason Street, likes to use the somewhat controversial phrase of SQLI. SQL injection is the most common vulnerability on the internet today. And, you know, we can argue definition of vulnerability and things like that, but it's true. It's amazing. It's incredible where SQL injection still works, given that SQLI is the number one tool used in training people in how attack methodologies work. It's used for training defensive engineers, architects, devs for how attacks work so they can know how to defend against it. And yet it's prolific. I cannot believe it still works. Let's go through the anatomy of a hack. Let's take an example, pick your favorite example, and let's walk through how you might structure it, some of the tools you might use, things to think about, and then maybe some of the ways that you might be able to inoculate against that kind of attack. The most common methodology that I use when I have to keep it short is phishing. So I'll skip over that one because I consider that cheating. And even as a penetration tester, a lot of clients wouldn't even let us use phishing as an attack methodology because it always worked. 
But that's like actually kind of a good thing to bring up before we dive in. Still, the weakest link in any system is really the people that operate the system, right? Absolutely. And we can brush on that briefly. Phishing is incredibly effective. Like I said, it's so effective that many of my clients wouldn't even allow me to use it because they already knew they were susceptible to it. They knew that they didn't have good defenses and training in place against it. And they, so they said, look, it's not worth our money to pay you to use this. Go do something else while we work on this problem. And a lot of people inside of companies are getting sick and tired of the security awareness training they have to take that involves the anti-phishing stuff. And everybody knows what phishing is. Everybody knows how phishing works. Everyone in my family who doesn't even work in IT knows how phishing works because everyone ever has been subject to the security awareness training, especially in a day and age when everyone is given an email address. Even you know when you're a retail cashier, you suddenly have an x.com email address. And so you're given this awareness training. And the bottom line is that most of the trainings out there aren't very good. They're not training people properly, often because they weren't designed by people who know human psychology. And so in the end, the fact that most people don't really care if their company is compromised, you don't feel like they're a part of their company, are going to fall for these phishing attacks because they're not being vigilant, because their mind is elsewhere. And so in the end, you try long enough, you try hard enough, you're going to be able to fish somebody, you're going to be able to get somebody to click that link, you're going to be able to get somebody to download that executable. And because the protections aren't in place inside these corporations, that executable is going to fire, it's going to do what it was meant to do. And it's going to give you an in. And the reason I call this cheating as far as discussing an anatomy hack goes, is because you're also often just targeting the people with the highest level of access, you're targeting the IT admins, you're targeting the help desk, help desk was my favorite, because it's often very inexperienced people with very high levels of access within the company. And so once you can get one of them, you're in more often than not have keys to the kingdom at that point. And so it's just a short hop, skip and a jump to whatever you have defined as the goal for that engagement, be it credit card numbers, be it customer information, what have you. So you on the flip side, recommend talking to somebody about how to kind of limit the blast radius, so to speak. The conversation is all about defense in depth. It's all about security boundaries and making sure people don't have universal keys to the kingdom, right? Right. And that's very difficult in a huge corporation if you're dealing with tens of thousands of endpoints that have been around for 20 years since the dot-com boom even. It's really difficult to remediate some of these things. You know, I would go in and say, hey, look, everyone in your corporation has local admin rights on their Windows machines. That's absolutely devastating. That is a critical thing that you need to stop right now. And then it turns out they can't just turn that off because so many people have built their workflows around this requirement of local admin. And it's going to take years to figure out who actually needs local admin. And even when they do need local admin, there's controls you can put in place to make sure that they're just not constantly using it. But then you get the pushback from these teams who then have their managers push back, who then have the directors push back. And the next thing you know, your IT policy goes unchanged for years and years. The people have access to the most things within the environment also having local admin perpetually running as they're logged in. And if I can compromise one of those people, that's it. It's, you know, it's often game over right at that point. Okay. So skipping the humans as the weak link, let's talk about maybe the anatomy of a hack that isn't related to phishing. Sure. Hands down, the most common couch to compromise methodology slash attack vectors we see out there is the fingerprinting of an external environment to find anything that can be used to test login credentials. Login credentials are something that every attacker out there has just a gargantuan swath of. We're talking hundreds of gigs plus 
not only potential username password combinations, but in many cases, actual confirmed username and password combinations. And these come from all of the breaches that you hear about in the news on a literal daily basis now. So if you hear about, you know, X company got breached, if you see a number in there that says X number of customer records were leaked, that often means that a database was found somewhere containing that exact number of customer records. And it often contains usernames, passwords. Sometimes those passwords are plain text. Sometimes they're not. And in those cases, many researchers will go through a lot of effort to convert those hashed passwords into plain text. There's competitions for such things, which is amazing. And then those get shared around amongst various groups. And now we end up with, you know, I've got uh, almost half a terabyte here of password lists that I use when attempting to break in. And so the trick is figure out a place where I can attempt to see who's using what passwords. I put together a username list and a password list. The username list I can often build based on, it depends what I'm attacking. If I'm attacking, let's say, Outlook Web Access, I'm attacking your webmail login page. I'm going to guess that we're using email addresses to log into here. So I'm going to pretty easily using some very simple tools, figure out what the email address format is for your employees. All I really got to do is find two or three email addresses for anyone who works at your company. And I'll be able to figure out that out. Chances are your company uses something like first name dot last name or first initial last name, something like that. So I'll take my ocean of actual people names that I have, and I will build usernames in the nomenclature that your company is using and then build some emails based off of that. And that's all done through scripting. That's nothing I have to do by hand. Once I've got those, I just start firing those off in combination with the password list that I have. And I start with, you know, of course, the most common passwords and work my way down. You're going to start with everything from your, you know, your password one, two, three, your password exclamation point, password exclamation point one, password one, you know, those. So let me interrupt though, just for a second. So common way to slow those things down or with capture or with kind of log on back offs, things like that. How effective are those at stopping this brute force? Not very not very at all. Go ahead and just go on GitHub right now and search the phrase CAPTCHA bypass and recaptcha bypass. There's an ocean of results for this and they're all very effective. CAPTCHA just doesn't work. It does work to annoy your users. <laughs> it, it does work to keep the casual attacker at bay who doesn't feel like putting in any real work into developing a targeted attack against your site. It does work to keep the botnets at bay. The botnets that were crafted to launch one type of attack whenever they find one type of web application and then give up when it doesn't work and move on. But the real attackers, the intelligent attackers who have the desire to compromise your specific, whatever it is, website, company, whatever their end goal is, those are the ones who are going to be able to get past capture really easily. Failing even automated tools. If you have a form of a CAPTCHA that has not had any kind of bypass tool created for it, there are countless what we call Mechanical Turk companies out there that will sell you literal human beings that will solve the CAPTCHAs for you. And they have APIs. They give you how-tos and instructions and you drop their code into the script that you're writing and it will offload the CAPTCHA solving to a human being in, I was just looking at one that's in Indonesia, and for 50 US cents, you can get a thousand captures solved and they're paying these people the payout was well i don't remember much less than that i believe it was like 50 cents per five thousand captures solved or something like that but it's like hey work from home you can get 50 american cents which i imagine goes a long way there or the company wouldn't exist and so in the end captcha doesn't work because i can pay a human being a fraction of a dollar and get them to solve it for me 
I've also heard of where logons take longer and longer and kind of exponentially like back off, like exponential retries for to speak on microservices. What about those approaches? Are those effective? Yeah, those are effective because you're slowing the attacker down. Anything you can do to make the attack take more time is going to be an effective form of defense. We have a term for that. It's called time-based security. It's based off of a very popular book that most of us security folks like to read. It's called Time-Based Security, written by Win Schwarto. Great, great book. Everyone should read it. It's really short. It's excellent for anyone who's working in IT, not just security, but dev, et cetera. Highly recommended time-based security. And the bottom line is you will never have perfect security. So the trick is to make the attack take so long to succeed that either one of two things will happen. One, you're going to catch the attacker and be able to do something to assuade them. Or B, they're going to give up and go somewhere else. They're going to attack your nearest neighbor who's less secure. That's the bottom line there. So if you can't implement something that limits how many attempts can be made over X period of time, that's going to be more effective. That's still not a devastating defense because, like I mentioned earlier, computers have infinite patience. They can try for as long as the human lets them try. They can try while the human is sleeping. They can try while the human is eating. They just keep going. And if that human can figure out what the algorithm is behind you know, how many attempts you can make during what period of time before you get locked out, which often is trivial, then they just write that into the script. Try four attempts, pause for a minute. Try four attempts, pause for a minute. And the computer will just do this forever. They can randomize the length of time in between attempts to avoid being fingerprinted as a bot. Someone is trying one attempt every 25 seconds, but the attempt may come in after 10 seconds. It may come in after 13 seconds. It may come in after 21 seconds every time. It's really hard to say, hey, that's a bot because it's got this erratic activity. That's one of the many bypass mechanisms I would use when I was writing these attack scripts. It's just that randomization to prevent WAFs from detecting that I'm writing a script. Okay, so brute force password, at at some point, you're going to trip over, you're going to discover a way in, then what? So eventually, you're going to discover a way in. The whole purpose of trying these credentials is, you know, not to necessarily gain access to someone's inbox, although an email inbox, as anyone could guess, could just be an absolute treasure trove of useful information for progressing with an attack. But you're looking for valid credentials because those credentials can be used in a lot of other places. One of my favorite places to use those, of course, is VPNs. So I'll be pegging your inbox just trying to get a valid set of credentials because maybe I determined that your mail server is the least protected as far as defending against brute forcing attempts goes. Once I've got those valid credentials, I'll hop on over to your VPN and I'll log in there and boom, now I have access to your network. I'm inside your corporate network. And this sounds like I'm making it easy just for the sake of explanation here, but I'm not. This is an extremely, extremely, I would say on on my end, the most common attack vector that I used. It was brute force the mailboxes until you got good credentials and then use those credentials on the VPN and then you're in. This works so many times. These are all things you can defend against. Multi-factor authentication goes a huge step of the way, especially if you're dealing with things like Active Directory logins. And yet most companies don't implement that. It's getting better now, but I would still go as far as to say that most companies don't implement that. It's extremely expensive. It's difficult to implement, especially when you're talking even Fortune 1000 with the number of computers they have to implement this on. And not just computers, but services and microservices. It gets overwhelming. But in the end, it's definitely the most devastating defense against these sorts of attacks. So once I've got these valid credentials and I'm able to VPN in, then I start looking around again. I see what I can see from the position on the network where I've been dropped off. What does the VPN have access to? 
In most cases, there's no network segmentation. I'm able to just fingerprint the entire network and see all the servers that are running out there and see all the services that they're listening on. And I'll start looking again for places I can use valid login credentials, especially if I've gained valid Active Directory login credentials, because that means I'm going to be able to use that on every Windows system and possibly every Unix Linux system that's in here as well. I'll try to identify like server groups or server subnets. Usually you can do that based on DNS names because those are the ones that are going to likely have the most useful information or access. Those are the ones that are going to most likely have admins logged into them whose you know tokens I can steal or are possibly going to be the endpoint and have the gold I'm looking for, whether that gold is your credit card numbers or customer information or something like that. And so I'm going to hop through the network again, just doing what I just did, trying the logins that I have, trying new logins now that I'm in. The vast majority of the time, the defenses that people erect externally against these brute forcing attempts don't exist internally. Nobody is throttling login attempts against an internal web application. And that blows my mind. Because oftentimes, let's say, especially in the medical realm, I would see internal web applications that protect databases of private patient data. And they think that, oh, because this web application is not exposed to the internet, it's intranet only, that means I don't have to put any protections on here because definitely only employees are going to be accessing this. So it's not something I need to be concerned about. Nobody ever thinks about that malicious attacker that's inside your network. And yet all we hear is that stereotype of, oh, the APT has been inside your network for years and you didn't know. And everyone goes, yeah, yeah, I know we're already compromised. There's nothing we can do. But at the same time, they don't attempt to do anything about it. And so adding multi-factor authentication to your internal web apps is a huge step in the right direction, especially, of course, if those web apps are, in fact, protecting something you don't want leaked out of your company. Monitoring for not only failed login attempts, but also valid login attempts in certain situations. If you have systems that should absolutely never be logged in on any kind of regular basis or ever at all, unless some maintenance is being done, you should be monitoring for those. Let's say your domain controllers, that's a huge one. You should have an alert that goes off for your security team or whoever monitors such things that every time a domain controller is logged into, an alert should go off and someone should investigate that. Every time a domain administrator logs into any system anywhere, an alert should go off because nobody should ever be using a domain administrator login or account unless they're administering a domain controller. Those are both very rare, very suspicious situations. And most of the time, you'll find that it's somebody doing legitimate work for legitimate reasons. And you go, okay, good, fine. And you mark that off in the ticket and you call it a day. You know, I do recommend anytime a DA is logging in or a DC is logged into that there be a change control ticket and that all gets associated, but that's up to you. Yeah, just alerting on good logins, valid logins goes a huge step of the way. Because remember, I've got good credentials now that I'm using. I'm hopping around your network with a proper username, with a proper password, using it exactly once because it works. And so normally, if you're just alerting on like, oh, this system has had 20 failed logins in a 60-second period, that's suspicious. Yeah, that's going to work, but it's not going to stop me. Whereas if you go, hey, a domain admin logged in once, and that should never happen, that's going to stop me. If I created my own domain admin account, you should alert on that. Every time a domain, you know, I could give you this long list, but it's things like that that are easier to implement that we just don't think of because we have this mentality of there's the internet and there's our intranet and the internet is where all the bad guys are and the intranet is all our good employees. And for some reason, 
we just ignore the fact that all it takes is one person's account to be compromised. And now the internet and the intranet are one and the same. So again, this goes right back to what I said at the very beginning. This is the defense here, defense in depth, layers of security to make sure that there's boundaries. You've got subnets, bastions, to TFA. Are these the things that are going to stop someone trying to get into a system? Absolutely. Aside from that time-based security, to coincide with that time-based security is defense in depth. That's a critical part of it. It's how you slow people down. You put so many layers in the way that eventually either they're going to hit one that they can't get past, or it's going to take so long that it's not worth their time anymore. Um, Time is something that humans can never generate more of for themselves. And so it even goes beyond patience. It goes to, look, this is taking too long. Maybe the data I'm trying to access has a value that diminishes over time. Like time affects everything. Anytime you can do something to increase the amount of time an attack takes, even if you're dealing with an automated attack, um, that's going to help you. And so defense in depth is critical. Defense in depth effectively, the way I like to think of it at least is, okay, what happens when that fails? That's what you should apply to every single piece of defense that you have. Okay, what happens when that fails? And eventually you'll hit a point of, well, then we're screwed. But that point should be, you bounce that off of your risk assessment and you go, all right, so if that fails, that means all of these other things have failed. That means this amount of time has passed. And also the chances of all of these things failing and failures include, you know, vulnerabilities, some means of bypassing, you know, a valid login, putting all those together is part of your risk assessment. You go, okay, if they got to this, we're screwed point, the chances of somebody getting there are, you know, in the triple zeros of a percent. And so we're willing to accept that risk. You get your defense in depth built so that your risk acceptance is, for lack of a better term, very acceptable. QCon's all about architecture and microservices. So how do you build an appropriate defense in depth when you're building something like a microservice architecture? Is JSON web tokens enough because it doesn't actually create authentication? All it does is, you know, generate a SHA and then validates the SHA hasn't changed. Is that enough to protect internal microsystems? When you're dealing with things like that, which come down to, like you said, dealing with, you know, SHA generation and just hash validation, the most common failures I see in those regards is people designing these systems without actually understanding the underlying functionality. They perhaps learned, hey, you're supposed to do it this way. They don't understand why you're supposed to do it this way. And you end up with these bad situations where you can have the same SHA being generated for every single transaction. It comes down to understanding why you're doing what you're doing, understanding how it works. It's not that complicated. Like You don't have to understand exactly how the SHA algorithm generates a hash. There's no need for that. You have to understand why we're generating a hash. That's much easier to understand. At that point, you can understand why what you're doing is important and how you should implement it. I find too many instances where we're able to get around JWT just based on guessing encryption keys because somebody used a garbage encryption key, you know, a, a phrase of just like a single word like puppy to base things off of in dev. And now that hasn't been changed. And now that still exists in prod. I find so many situations where I'm able to either directly locate or guess passwords, encryption keys, what have you, just based on looking at comments within the code of a web application within the JavaScript of a page. I'm able to find keys left in Git repositories 
things like that. So it's not so much of, hey, is there something really critical we need to be doing when we're implementing JWT as a security mechanism? Or is there a whole realm uh, or school of thought for security regarding microservices? Because yes, there is. Absolutely. That's its whole other conversation. But the problem right now is the same as the problem with the OWASP top 10 being unchanging, is that people still aren't wrapping their heads around the basic concepts of security within what they're doing. So talking about you know really advanced topics isn't what's necessary right now. And I think it comes down to technology advancing so quickly. You know, Even I would say three, four years ago, you wouldn't even heard the phrase microservices being used. You know, that was something that was only being used in huge corporations like, you know, maybe Facebook, et cetera. And, and now it's something that everyone looks into doing, even when they don't need to do it. It's like Kubernetes. Everyone's saying like, oh, they're using Kubernetes. We should use Kubernetes. It's, you know, microservices is one of those new buttons. AI enabled microservices that leverage Kubernetes. You got to get them all together. Blockchain. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's validated by a blockchain. Yep. Yeah. And so, yeah, the bottom line is that the stuff is coming out so fast and we're having to learn it so fast that we're not learning the security of it because of the same problem that has always been. Security is always an afterthought because it's not necessary for functionality. And we're being pushed so hard to get these projects done on time and under budget that security is the easiest thing to ignore. We cobble it together. We go, uh, works. We're done. Ship it. Yeah, ship it. And then we'll get it tested later. We'll have a penetration tester, whoever tests the final product after it's shipped. And that is no good. That is the worst possible scenario. Well, the worst possible scenario, of course, is never having it tested. But the second worst is having it tested after it's been completed with the best possible scenario, having the security being reviewed through every step of your SDLC to make sure that things are being done properly. So we're at the point to wrap up. Any final thoughts? Stop it. <laughs> Please stop. Final thoughts. Security is not complicated. We like to make it sound like it is, but it's not. It's not complicated because, as I mentioned throughout all of this, the most basic problems that we had, many of which existed you know, in the mid-90s when we were first connecting computers together in a public manner, still exist. Learn about these things as a developer, as an architect. Learn about the OS Top 10. And I don't mean just read about them. I mean learn how to utilize the attack. Learn how to be an attacker because once you've actually executed that attack, you're going to understand it so much more. That's the same way I would guess most people learned to be a developer of, of any sort. You learned by doing it. You didn't learn by reading a book and go, okay, cool, now I know JavaScript or whatever. No, you learned by writing things in JavaScript, screwing them up, not understanding how certain functions work, going back, reading about them, trying different ways. Learn the attacks. There are no end of education out there on the internet on how to actually launch these attacks. That's one of the reasons that these basic attacks are still so common. It's because they're so easy to learn. And it's the first things people are learning. Learn SQLI. Learn brute forcing. Go try it, you know, against a system that you're authorized to learn. <laughs> and it's so much easier now than ever before to stand up a virtual network within your own home for literally no money to launch these attacks against. So learn the attacks that's going to give you such better insight into how to defend against them versus just the six sentences you were taught in a textbook five years ago when you're still in college learning computer science. Well, that's a great segue. If you liked what you heard and you want to learn more about different types of attacks, check out Johnny's talk at QCon at the end of this month. It's going to be bypassing modern WAFs using scripting techniques and autonomous attacks. So you can see live demonstration of how to bypass a WAF. Johnny, thanks for checking with us on the InfoQ podcast. Thanks, Wes. Super excited to check out the con. See you guys soon. 
Wondering what's the current state of the DevOps and cloud computing space? Where are Kubernetes, chaos engineering, and AI ops in terms of adoption? Read the InfoQ Trends reports to find out about this and much more in less than 11 minutes. Check it out at infoq.link forward slash DevOps dash trends dash 2019. We'll include the link in the podcast description as well.